And let's turn to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. I want to start with a question this morning. And I want you to um, answer it privately, but I want you to answer it honestly. And I really want you to think hard about this answer and, and maybe even write it down um, because I'm going to ask two questions and then I'm going to ask two more questions. But, but this first question gets right to the heart of what we're going to study this morning. The question is, if someone was going to describe your life using only two characteristics, what would they be? If someone was going to describe your life using only two characteristics, what would they be? And then the question that comes out of this, and this answer may be a little def- different than the first one, is how would you want them to describe you? So first question is, if somebody was going to describe you in two characteristics, what would they say? And second of all, how would you want them to describe you? Because those two may not be the same thing. I'm sure there are a lot of words and phrases that, that we're thinking of right now uh, and that we would uh, use. Maybe, you know, one of those is I'm a passionate Christian or I'm a loving and devoted spouse or, or parent or I work really hard, or some variation of, of what defines you, what you want to be. And then maybe there are other phrases that come to mind about things that you like to do, or things that you're passionate about. Maybe you're a, a teacher, or a nurse, or you uh, love to hunt and fish, or you're a Packers fan, you're an ardent Packers fan, or, or you're, you're, you like to be the life of the party, or whatever the case may be. What phrases would describe you? And when you think about the first answer and you think about the second answer, how do those answers match up? Are we striving so hard toward what we want to be that that what other people see is really what we want them to see? That that they're getting accurate portrayal of who we are and what our convictions are, what our passions are? Or do they define us differently than we want to define ourselves? Now, the difference could be life circumstances. The difference could be that we haven't achieved our goals yet. We're not where we want to be. Or it could be any number of reasons. But, but many times there's a disparity between how people see us and how we want to be. Now, let me ask two more questions. And these are only going to be in a spiritual context. If someone was to describe your spiritual walk and your convictions and your spiritual impact using only two characteristics, what would they be? And the second question out of that would be, what would you want them to be? How would you want people to describe you spiritually? If, if they were going to evaluate Paul Rhodes this morning, if you're sitting there going, all right, what do I see in Paul Rhodes every week? Who, who is he spiritually? What does he actually come across as? Not, not a persona, not he's the pastor. Just, just me, face to face in the lobby or, or out in the shopping mall or whatever the case may be. How would you describe me spiritually? And, and as I think about how I'd like to be described spiritually, do those two match up? Now as we start to ask those questions, and I again encourage you maybe to write those down, if not this morning, then later on today. But, but we're going to study a person this morning in the Old Testament who set a standard for what those two characteristics should be. And he may not be the person that we would naturally think of. 
It's not Moses, it's not Elijah, it's not David, it's not Daniel, it's not any of those people, Abraham, that, that we would think of as the great men or women of the Old Testament. This guy is actually only mentioned in 36 verses in the whole Bible, and he may be one of the most underrated people in Scripture that the Holy Spirit wants us to see and model. And this morning, we're going to really focus just on one verse, Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24, because this verse explains why Caleb is so distinguished in God's sight. We'll look at a couple other passages, but this is the one I really want to focus on, and and Holy Spirit, help us this morning to develop this and to understand this. Look at Numbers 14, 24. But my servant Caleb... Because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now Caleb was one of only two people out of two million that made it from bondage in Egypt into the door of the promised land. Two million people left Egypt when Pharaoh finally released the the children of Israel. And they went through the Red Sea. And we know all that account historically throughout the book of Exodus. But, But when they finally get to the promised land and the waters part again. And God sends them through on dry dry ground, which was not coincidental. That was, that was the opening and the closing. So they finally go into the promised land. There are only two people out of the two million that made the whole journey. Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb is, is one of those people that, that we kind of don't pay attention to. We know about Joshua. He's got his own book. We know that God chose him to be the one who followed Moses and led the people into the promised land. And Joshua was a great leader. And, and for me and my house will serve the Lord. We know about Joshua. Joshua was a man of God who, who made a tremendous impact and was faithful to the work of the Lord. But, but don't miss Caleb because Caleb was no slouch. Caleb was a powerful man of God, and while he wasn't up front like Joshua, his spiritual influence was undeniable. And God used him to speak to the nation, and God used him to influence people to follow God. You know, I think sometimes when we study Scripture and we look at people like Joshua and Caleb, we get a little bit insecure. I don't know if you do, but I do. A little bit insecure, like, okay, this is great, and we study these great men and women in the Bible, but, but honestly, how can I be an Abraham? How can I be an Elijah, or, or a David, or a Daniel, or even a, a Joshua and a Caleb? And we know they're normal people. We see in the Bible lays it very clearly their, their faults and their struggles. So, so that gives us a little bit of comfort, right? That they were normal people and they struggled with things the same way I do. But, but clearly they had some kind of special anointing for the Lord. And, and God spoke directly to them in many cases. So, so how in the world do, does Paul Rhodes or, or you in the pew, how, how, how do we look at that and go, well, I can't compare to that? Elijah was a man just like us, James says, but come on, he called down fire from heaven, and and it didn't rain for three and a half years because he said so, and then after three and a half years, he prayed and it started raining again, and then Ahab was riding in his chariot back to Jerusalem, and and Elijah outran the chariot, I mean, come on, this guy, he, he, he did all sorts of things, he was fed by the ravens, how could we possibly be an Elijah? So here's what we fall back into. 
I'm doing the best that I can. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm growing spiritually. But, but to have that kind of influence and, and to be talked about the way someone like Caleb is, that, that just seems a little bit out of reach. Well, let me put that to rest right now. Because it's one of the ways that the enemy tries to convince us to live a dull, uninspired life of maintenance. Let's just get along. Let's do our best. We'll never be a Caleb. We'll never be an Elijah. God's not going to work in our lives that way. So we'll just, we'll just persevere. We'll stand strong for the Lord. We'll do our best because we're not going to do any miracles. And our prayers aren't going to be answered by fire from heaven. So, so really, having a significant spiritual impact, it's a lovely concept. But it's not our everyday reality. Well, let me dispel that in terms of Caleb. Caleb never did one miracle. He never had the Lord that we can see in Scripture speak directly to him verbally. And he really wasn't used in any kind of a dramatic way. The only act of significance from Caleb's life was that he was one of the 12 spies that went into Canaan. And when he got back, his opinion on whether they were going to be successful in invading was so much in the minority that not only did the other 10 spies oppose him and Joshua's view, but the people were so ticked off at them that they picked up rocks and wanted to stone him. So when I look at my life and I look at Caleb's life and when I look at your life and Caleb's life, we actually can pretty easily compare them because while Caleb saw some miracles, so did two million other people and that didn't persuade them to follow God. So Caleb is, is as much like you and me, I think, as anybody we can find in Scripture. So, so why are we studying him this morning and how does that encourage us? Well, when you look back at verse 24... There are two distinguishing characteristics about his life that the Lord says, I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to see who he is. And they're very simple principles. They don't seem particularly spectacular. And yet they are so vitally important that we live this way. Okay, write them down. Number one, characteristic number one was that Caleb had a different spirit. He had a different spirit. I'll explain that in a minute. And characteristic number two was that Caleb followed the Lord fully. Caleb had a different spirit and he followed the Lord fully. I studied all the verses that that the scripture has about Caleb, all 36 verses. And this verse is the one where God says this is who Caleb was. Everything else you see him talking or reacting. But this is the one, and it's affirmed later in one other verse that we'll look at. But this is the one where it says, if you want to know who Caleb was, this is who he was. He had a different spirit, and he followed the Lord fully. Now what does that mean? Well, let's start with the first one, that he had a different spirit. From a foundational standpoint, That statement is true of anybody who has trusted in Jesus Christ and who has surrendered their life to him. As believers, we are told by scripture that we have a different spirit that Christ has produced in us. That through him our spiritual nature has changed from old to new, from dead to living, from sinful to righteous. So anybody who has trusted in Christ, anybody who proclaims the name of Jesus and says, Jesus is my Savior, has a different spirit. Now, obviously, in the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus. 
Jesus hadn't yet come. He hadn't died on the cross. He hadn't risen again from the grave. But people in the Old Testament understood the concept of sacrifice. Because God had established that in the Mosaic law, the concept of sacrifice. In fact, you can go all the way back to Abraham. Remember when God says to Abraham, you want to prove you love me? Take your only son and take him up and put him to death on the altar. Abraham's obedient. The Bible says in Hebrews that it was counted to him for righteousness because he understood the concept of the atoning sacrifice. So he takes Isaac, he binds him up, he lays him on the altar, and he's ready to kill him. And God says, stop, now I know you love me. Now I know you trust me because that's the son of the promise. That's the one that I said in my covenant in Genesis 12. He's going to be the one through whom I'm going to build a nation that will be more than the stars of the sky. So Abraham, now I know you trust me because God is all about trust. So take him off the altar. There's a lamb now that's going to be a substitute for your son. That's the picture of salvation. So people understood salvation. They understood that blood was required to make a payment of sin. They understood the theology of the atonement, which was sin is forgiven and the sinner is pardoned because of the sacrifice. And that was symbolized when this group had left Egypt and God instituted the Passover. He said, take a spotless lamb and kill it and put its blood on the doorposts. The doorposts were wooden and they represented the cross. And he said, this lamb is going to be the sacrificial lamb. That's a picture of Jesus. And the people are going to be spared death, which is a symbol of atonement. And you're going to be saved out of bondage and delivered, which is a picture of eternal salvation through Christ. So people in the Old Testament had an understanding of sacrifice, substitution, uh, payment of sin, salvation, and atonement, and deliverance. They understood it well. If anybody understood it, it was the Jews who came out of Egypt. So Hebrews again says, when Old Testament people trusted in that, they were saved because they had the concept. Jesus hadn't yet come as the perfect and final sacrificial lamb, but they were just as saved as you and I. Now, Caleb was one of those people. He understood bondage. He had been in bondage. He understood what it meant to be forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. He understood what it meant to be cleansed and given a new nature. So he is like us. Anyone who is a Christian is given a different spirit. But there's a second aspect here to this that's an outgrowth of having our spirit freed. See, when we're saved, we're no longer, Romans says, under bondage. We're no longer under the control of sin. Every single person that's born, every baby that's born today at, at Wheaton Franciscan is under the bondage of sin. They're born with a sin nature, and that's going to show up at about six months. And everybody is condemned because that's what Adam's sin did. It condemned all mankind. But Jesus says, I will forgive you and I will cleanse you and I will transform you from that. In other words, when we're saved, we're freed out of sin and we're made a new creation. So, what does it mean to have a different spirit? Well, a different spirit comes out of that freed spirit. 
And this becomes abundantly clear to anyone who sees us that there has been a spiritual change. Caleb stood in stark contrast to two million people. Think about that. You've got two million people, which is what, three times the size of the city of Milwaukee? And out of three times the size of the city of Milwaukee, there are really only two people that kind of distinguish themselves. Moses, let's add a third. But everybody else is in rebellion. Everybody else is turning. Everybody else is worshiping false gods. They're selfish and, and, and they're, they're, they're resisting God. They're full of doubt. They're full of fear. They're quick to turn on the Lord. That They easily are ready when, when they say, uh, Moses is taking too long. Let's make our own God. They, they quickly go, let's take off our rings. Get your earrings. Honey, get your earrings and get your necklace. Come on, we've got to build this false God. And they build this golden calf as God is speaking up on the mountain. And and they say, this is the God who got us out of Egypt. You just watched it be formed. The people were quick to turn on God. They were on the Lord's side when the Lord gave to them. They were on the Lord's side when the Lord was doing for them. When God didn't seem to expect anything of them. But trusting him, oh come on. And, and following his leading, I don't know, where is where's God taking us? And, and repenting, come on, that, that, that's, that's a little too far. And you want us to yield control of our lives to you? No, we're not going to do that. A lot of people take God when he gives but when God takes away to refine us, we go, no, I'm drawing the line here. Well, God, I love it when you bless me, and it's so wonderful. But, but now you're expecting me to put off sin. Now you're expecting me to walk in holiness. Now you're expecting me to, to be set apart. Nah, I don't know. That might be a bit much. I love that you're willing to save me. I love that you're willing to help me and provide for me and, and be my strength and my shield. But, but if you're going to ask me to really trust you during those times, I don't know. You're going to have to keep doing. This was Israel's problem. Ungrateful, unfaithful, immoral. God will follow you when you make us happy. And we're thrilled you got us out of Egypt. But your expectations of holiness and faithfulness are just too much. So I tell you what, we'll follow you for now. But as soon as things get a little tiny bit unpleasant for us, we're going to complain. We're going to try to mutiny against our leaders. And we want to tell you, we want to go back to Egypt. It is, it is remarkable. And we would think, what an anomaly, except that's how we live. Soon as things get difficult, well, oh boy, I'm really struggling to trust the Lord. Why? You weren't struggling to trust the Lord when he was blessing you. God is here, God is here, God is here, he is faithful. Is he? Every single day, no matter what happens tomorrow, are we going to be able to sing that? My God is a strong God, mighty is my God. Well, as soon as that crisis hits, are we going to say with the same attitude and the same vigor, my God is a strong God and I'll serve him no matter what? Or do we fade back? Israel faded back. That's why Caleb looked back at the verse. That's why God says, but, but, what a contrast but my servant Caleb, oh, he's different. And you guys need to pay attention to him. Because not only is he spiritually serious, but in every aspect of his life, listen now, he's following me. Not just in the desert, not just, hey guys, let's follow the cloud. 
He is following me in every single aspect of his life. And I want you to see in the verse that it says, Caleb has had a different spirit. In other words, this wasn't new. This was consistent and regular and long-standing. From the time we were in Egypt to the time we're going to get in the promised land, he has had a different spirit. He's been so faithful and so consistent. And that was shown when the ten spies looked at the potential bad circumstances. And they said, we can't, we can't do this. This, this I, I, I don't know. No, the people are too big. Are you kidding me? There's no way. And Caleb stands up and goes, guys, come on. We are going to do this. God has promised this. Don't look at the obstacles. Look at the ways God's going to deliver. In fact, step back a second to chapter 13 and verse 30. Look at what he says. Caleb quieted the people before Moses because if you read the previous five verses, they're just full of anxiety. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of the land for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. There's that. My God is a strong God until I see obstacles. So they gave out to the sons of Israel who had a bad report of the land which they had spied on, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land which devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. I love when people have great hyperbole when they don't want to trust the Lord. Then we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And, and so we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation, notice the words the Holy Spirit uses, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would, we, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Such fatalism. Oh, no. We were like grasshoppers, and the people were huge, and well, I wish we just died in Egypt. Caleb, I think, is just standing there shaking his head like, are you joking? Like, are you kidding me right now? Insert some, some, some reality into Scripture, right? Not that Scripture's not real, but sometimes we read it, and the people said, and they grumbled. No, come on. Get the emotion of this. <laughs> Two million people. Two million Jewish people. <laughs> what are we going to do? And they're weeping in the tents. We're like grasshoppers. <laughs> I think this is the look Caleb had on his face. See this? Josh, Joshua, you see this? Like seriously? Are, are they really, this is, this is a joke, right? We just were there. What, what are the ten other spies talking about? God said, the land is flowing with milk and honey. We walked in. In fact, we brought back the milk and honey. And the people in the previous verses acknowledge, yes, you brought back milk. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, let's review. God said it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. We brought back milk and honey. You say there's milk and honey. God said we're going to take the land where he's going to defeat the inhabitants. We can go in and take the land and defeat the inhabitants because God said so. But now you're saying even though the land's flowing with milk and honey that we can't take the inhabitants because we're like grasshoppers. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yes. Yes, that's what we're saying. We can't do it. Such a disconnect here. 
such a disconnect in the lack of faith. Now go down to verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who spied at the land, tore their clothes. That's the act of mourning. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This land which we pass through to spy on is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us. Look at the words of faith. He will bring us into this land, and he will give it to us. It's a land which flows with milk and honey. By the way, you're holding that in your hands. Only, verse 9, here's the key. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection's been removed from them, and the Lord's with us. Do not fear them. And a great cheer went up, and the people said, let's go. Nope, verse 10. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meaning to all the sons of Israel. Caleb is different. He has a different spirit. He thinks differently. He acts differently. He's bold and he's courageous. And he's not frustrated or hindered by the circumstances and the fears. Even in the face of danger and opposition. And while the ten spies say, we only have problems. Caleb says, we only have the Lord. We have his power and his protection and his promise. And God has told us, we're going to take this land. So I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I know what I'm talking about. We have the Lord. Let's go forward. And the people say, nah. This is what happens when we try to follow the Lord half-heartedly instead of fully like Caleb. That word, look back at verse 34, that word different, it actually means following, which means that Caleb had a following spirit. He was so completely committed to the Lord that it distinguished him, that faith was not just part of his life. Listen now, faith is not just a part of his life, it is his life. So many people, I think, try to make faith a part of their life. I, I, I don't even like the phrase, my spiritual life. No, your spiritual life is your life. It's not this little compartment. Well, here's my sports life, and here's my work life. Here's my family life. Here's my spiritual life. No, your spiritual life is the foundation for all of the others. And if it's not, then we're just following the Lord half-heartedly. Caleb says, I don't know about you guys, but I am sold out to the Lord. I'm not, just, I'm not just trusting God for the moment. I'm trusting God all the time. And everybody saw it. And God says, I want you to pay attention to it. Our lives should be such that people see us and say salvation and spiritual transformation are legitimate. And they're desirable. And I better get on board and trust the Lord because the path I'm on is wrong. And it's proven by that person and that woman and that man and that teenager and that child. So the first question and most obvious question we have to answer is, are we saved? Now you say, come on, Paul, it's a, it's a Christian church, an evangelical church. What are, you, what are you doing asking that? i got to ask that question this morning. Are you saved by Jesus Christ? Because someone who is saved has willingly repented of and renounced their sin and has gratefully accepted Christ's offer of salvation. They know there's no other way for that penalty to be lifted. 
Someone who is saved by Jesus is certain of it. There's no doubt. There's no hesitation. There's no equivocation. Someone who is saved is so grateful for being delivered that they, and that they're forgiven that they're now fearful of offending the Lord in any way. We talked about that at camp. We'll post the messages this week. Fearful of offending the Lord. Someone who is saved wants nothing to do with their old nature. They don't want anything that the world is offering as a substitute for God because there is no substitute for God. Someone who is saved loves the Lord. They're humbled by his mercy and they only want to please him. Does that describe you this morning? I'm not trying to be mean or put anybody on the spot. Maybe you're churched. Maybe you've never been saved. Maybe you hate God this morning. I don't know where you stand, but when you hear those descriptions, is that you or not? And if it's not you, let me tell you this morning, the mercy of God is available right now. Right now, Christ says, as many as receive me, I will give the power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on my name. And if you confess your sins, I am faithful to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I'll adopt you as my own. You can do that right now. Right this second, you can say to God, God, save me right now. I I hate my sin. I'm done with it. I'm on a path to nowhere. I need you. And right now, as we stand here and sit here, God's going to deliver you and change you forever. And if that's something you want to talk about this morning, I'll spend as long as you need up here after the service. And we'll have other people come and pray for you. So are we saved? Now, assuming that most of us are, here's the second word. Do we have this different spirit? Because you and I are called to live by a following spirit. We've been freed, now we're to follow. And our lives are supposed to be distinctive and clear because we are fully committed to giving ourselves to the Lord like Caleb was. And that is a purposeful and conscious act of the will. But how many of us live in incomplete commitment? Jesus Christ did not go to the cross and defeat death and deliver us so we could continue to flirt with sin and follow him when it's convenient. Jesus did not bear the weight of uncountable sins and get tortured, and get beaten, and and put himself on the cross, and die, and then defeat sin, and rise again, so you and I can be marginal, so we can be somewhat worldly, so we can play around, so we can hang out with, with those that hate God. So we can start to have our convictions changed and and molded by people who want nothing to do with the word of God. That's not why God gave us a new spirit. He gave us a new spirit so we'll be followers of Christ like Caleb was. So, are you living by his spirit? Are you surrendering to the Lord daily? Are you walking according to the word of God? Or are you living how you want to? We can evaluate that. Let me give you four qualities of a following spirit. How do we evaluate how we're living? Well, we kind of look at our lives and look at other people. No, let's really evaluate whether we have a following spirit like Caleb. Number one, a following spirit is committed to unwavering obedience. Not double-minded. 
Double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. So a following spirit is committed to unwavering obedience. A following spirit, second, is also committed to holiness. The person is not looking for lifestyle loopholes, not looking for, for moral gray areas, not, not justifying compromise and disobedience as liberty. Let, let's, let's be done with that as Christians. Well, I have liberty. No, God's freed you to be holy. Quit dancing around the edges. Following spirits committed to holiness. Third, a following spirit is committed to trusting and obeying with joy. They're not irritated when God calls us to be set apart. They realize that that's the greatest freedom that we could have. There's no greater freedom than living in Christ. So, so they're, not, they're not bothered by trust. They, they're ready to obey with joy. And fourth, a following spirit is committed to constant growth and maturation. They're not content with maintenance. They despise spiritual decline. I had a maintenance week spiritually. I'll confess that. I, didn't, I don't think I, I grew exponentially this week. So I look at, all right, tomorrow's Monday morning. Am I going to have another maintenance week? So I get to next Sunday and I'm like, well, I did okay. No. Come on, Christ gives more than that. Next week, we should be more on fire for the Lord, more passionate, more ready to walk in there. All right, I'm ready to worship. I don't care if there are technical issues. I don't care if the pastor's wearing green pants. doesn't matter because I'm going to worship the Lord. And I've been so, I've been in the Word this week. I'm on fire. I want to tell people about it. Did you see the, man, do you know what the Lord's doing? That's what we need next Sunday. And you know, the next Sunday after that, we need to be more. You go, well, come on, that's unsustainable. Is it really unsustainable? Or is that what God calls us to? Now, if those sentences don't describe us, look back at what you just wrote. If they don't describe us, what does that mean? Well, it means there's still a resistant and rebellious spirit that's holding us back. And we have to identify it, and we have to eliminate the purposeful choices that we're making to stunt spiritual growth and hurt our witness. And that could be a long list. But I started to think about Caleb and his situation and the people around him and the fact that he was one out of two million. There were a couple others, but it was a handful. What was his situation like? How was he tempted to be resistant and rebellious? Because it was all around him. Instead of being intentionally faithful and committed, I'm sure the peer pressure was phenomenal. Come on, Caleb, get on board. You're such a sap for trying to follow God. Come on, we got to figure this out. Quit it already. You, you imagine the peer pressure? Two million against two? So what were... The things that Caleb was facing and how did he cultivate that following spirit? Well, let me close with this. I want to quickly look at four ways that he would have been tempted, which also happened either before ways that were tempted. So what did Caleb do to follow the Lord and how did the Lord bless him? First of all, go back to chapter 13 and verse 30, where Caleb shows that when obstacles are huge and defeat seems certain, when obstacles are huge and defeat seems certain, a person with a following spirit stays completely confident in the Lord's provision. 
when obstacles are huge, it seems like defeat's going to happen, we have no way out, that, that the person that has this spirit stays completely confident in the Lord's position, uh, provision. The people are overwhelmed, the circumstances are huge, they're making up stories, there's all this kind of, of talk, the opponents are too strong, the cities are too fortified, the problems are going to be huge, there's no way we can do this. I mean, it just goes on and on throughout the camp, and the, and the misery just spreads. They're holding the fruit. Yeah, it's good fruit. Looks good. It's what God said. But, but you know what? That doesn't verify the promise of God. We, we, we can't do this. And in a sense, they're absolutely right. Because anytime we try to do things in our own sufficiency, we're going to fail. They're holding the fruit of the land that God said there will be fruit. And they still won't believe. But Caleb says, shh. I love that verse. Look at 1330. Caleb quieted the people. How do you quiet two million people without a microphone? Shh, 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 shh. Shh, shh. Look, guys. Shh. You're holding the fruit. God is faithful. We will win. The Lord said it. We will overcome. Sometimes you need somebody in your life. And doesn't it irritate you when somebody says, shh, like, I'll slap you upside your head. <laughs> Tell me to shh. Sometimes we need people to say, shh, stop striving. God is faithful and God will allow us to overcome. Let me be that voice to you this morning. Shh. Stop arguing with God. He is faithful. He will get you through. But you have to trust him, and you have to take him at his promise. Second, would you see in verse 30, that Caleb shows that when we're around people who focus on fear, and there are a lot of them, when we're around people who focus on fear, a following spirit is not discouraged and not dissuaded, but instead persuades. There's a huge difference between dissuasion and persuasion. And when we're allowed around people that are negative, whose faith is limited, and, and who's, uh, who gravitate toward fear and are not grateful to God, it spreads like a bad disease. And sometimes we have to say, you know what? I'm not going to allow that to get me down. You may be negative and you may be fearful, but God is good. And I'm going to follow him and I'm going to persuade you that you need to follow him. It's interesting if you look at the verse that Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, not before the Lord. This is in chapter 14. They don't fall on their face. They don't go into the tabernacle and fall before the Lord. They fall before the crowd. That's another message. But Caleb says, I'm going to have none of this. I'm going to have none of this. And they stand up and they persuasively reason with the people and say God is faithful and God wants us to resist rebelling and turning against him and trust him. In this case, it doesn't work. But you know what? That doesn't mean we should stop. Persuading people to follow Christ is going to become harder and harder with every single passing day. But that should not dissuade us. It should just make us bear down even more. He says, 
quit this resistant spirit. A fearful spirit, listen, a fearful spirit is a resistant spirit. You say, well, that's a little harsh. Actually, it's not, because when we fear, we're not trusting God. So that is a resistant spirit. Caleb says, we've got to follow the Lord. Third, chapter 14, verses 9 to 10, we're almost done. Here Caleb shows that when facing strong spiritual opposition, a person with a following spirit is distressed by sin, but abides in God's presence. Let me say it again. When facing strong spiritual opposition, a person with a following spirit is distressed by sin, but abides in God's presence. When the attack comes, and it will, through our circumstances, through different people, through direct warfare, it's important not to yield we should be disquieted and discouraged in a holy way by the damage that sin does. And we should be heartbroken this morning that, that our nation, so many people, are in bondage to sin. Israel was physically free from Egypt, but spiritually they were still in the chains of self-sufficiency and rebellion and lack of faith. And they were willingly giving in to the enemy's attack and believing his lies. And Caleb's distressed by that. He's so disheartened that the people would be that willing to turn on the Lord. And he says the only solution to what we are facing, this temptation we're facing, not to trust God, is to turn to the Lord. When you're being tempted to move away from the Lord, don't give in to that. Fight it. The devil will flee. And then you say, God, you're the only hope I have. Because if we don't look to the Lord for help, what's our option? We're left on our own devices. And I don't know about you, but my devices aren't very strong. I don't have that much in the arsenal to fight sin and to fight temptation and to fight spiritual opposition. So my help comes from, tell me who? The Lord. He's my shield. He is my strength. He's my buckler. He's my protection. I'll hide under the shadow of his wings. And when I do that, I'm comforted and I'm strengthened. I want you to look. One more verse and then we're going to make the last point pray. Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. The congregation picks up rocks, and it's ready to stone him. I hope a congregation never picks up rocks and is ready to stone me. But if it is, if you ever are, I hope the end of verse 10 happens. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. When the people, when the opposition reaches its height, and Caleb is still standing firm, that's when God shows up. And his presence comes down and fills the tabernacle. And it not only quieted the opposition, but if you read on, and I encourage you to read on in chapter 14 later today, God then shows mercy to the people. Can you imagine such a thing? That God would show mercy when they're about to stone the only two people that are still standing for him? When you are in need, and when you're in opposition, and when I'm in opposition, if we will call on the Lord, he will show up. His presence will be there and it will defeat the opposition. Last, we'll look at this, turn and look at this later. Deuteronomy 136, just write it down. When we're weary and feel alone in being faithful, a person with a following spirit will be blessed by the Lord. 
When we're weary and feel alone and being faithful, a person with a following spirit will be blessed by the Lord. God calls out Caleb again in Deuteronomy 136 and says, he's followed me fully. And here's what happened because of Caleb. I know I've talked long, but get these last two thoughts. Caleb had tremendous spiritual influence. When you read on in chapter 14 after verse 10, you'll see that because of him, God showed mercy on the people and continued to lead them. And then God says to Caleb, your descendants are going to be blessed by me. One of Caleb's brother, Othaniel, became one of the judges of Israel. God continued to bless through him because he was faithful to the Lord. And this was not partial blessing. The second thought is Caleb was blessed with abundance. God honored his faithfulness. God designated special land in the promised land for, for Caleb's family. And it was the land with the city of Hebron. Hebron was an important city in the Bible. It was where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lived and were all buried. It was be, a place that became a Levitical city of refuge. It was the place where David ruled Judah for seven years. God says, Caleb, because you've been faithful, because you've had a different spirit, because you followed me fully... I'm going to bless you for generations and generations and generations and generations. And this will be the land. When we get into that promised land, you have a special area. He tells that to nobody else but Caleb. He says, your family gets that plot of land. And by the way, that's not just a lousy piece of land out in the desert. That's a special, important place for me. That's what you're going to get. It's a very simple principle. When we're faithful, the Lord blesses. But when we're unfaithful, the Lord disciplines. When we're faithful, the Lord blesses. When we're unfaithful, the Lord disciplines. And that carries down to our family. We know the right side of the equation. We know the right side to be on. So, do we have a resistant, rebellious spirit? Or has the new freedom and the holy nature that God's given to us, given us a following spirit? Let's close our eyes.